So my name, for those of you who don't know me, is Andrew uh, Barr. I'm uh, a member here at Kingfisher Church. And over uh, the summer period, we have been, as a basis for our talks, our sermons, we've been uh, thinking about a book called God's Big Picture, written by a leader of a church in Oxford, um, St. Ebbs. Uh, the author is Vaughan Roberts. And it's a great book. If you haven't read it, I would thoroughly recommend it. And if you don't like reading, there's an audio book of it as well. And it's God's big picture, the storyline, if you like, God's plan of salvation, his rescue plan. And the emphasis is that it's one story. Uh, We have Jesus, we have Old Testament, the promise pointing to its fulfillment in Christ. And so far, we looked last week at the partial kingdom. This week, we're looking at the prophesied kingdom. Before we begin to look at that, of a prophesied kingdom, why don't we just um, pray? Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray now for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to hear your word. And we do pray, Lord, that not only do we hear your word, but your word will change us today and this week and beyond. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. So we are going to just have a a bit of a recap. The idea of God's kingdom is in terms of God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And this is where we were last week in the uh, partial kingdom. So... This is the story so far, if you like. We had the beginning, which is always a very good place to begin, the creation, and God with the first humans, Adam and Eve, in the garden, God's place, under his rule and blessing. And yet, at the beginning, there was that unilateral declaration of independence from the first humans. They said no to God's rule and reign. I will live life on my terms, our terms. So they were banished from the garden. They were no longer enjoying God's rule and reign. And they were no longer in God's place. Yet, and that's where we've got the fall there. And time and time again, the big problem is sin. That unilateral declaration of independence, what the Bible calls sin. And it gets worse and worse. We have the flood, we have Noah, and they start again, but still the problem persists. Until we get to the promise. And that was a man called Abraham, or Abram as he was then. And it was an act of pure grace. God chose Abraham. We aren't told why, but he did as an act of grace. And he made a promise to Abraham that his descendants, His people would live in God's place, under God's rule and reign, and be a people so numerous that even when you looked up in the stars of the sky, you couldn't count them. And that's surprising, considering that Sarai, or Sarah as she became, was beyond childbearing birth. But God works. He can do what we think is impossible. So that's, uh, And then we see how God, he hears his people cry out. They're in exile in um, Egypt, 
slavery. God rescues them, brings them out. He gives them the law so that they can live as his people. They are precious to him. And then they move in to the land that has been promised to them. They have the law, they conquer under Joshua, and then the monarchy is established. Um, First we have Saul, then he is superseded by David, and we have that Davidic, that line of David, the kings following from there. And that is where we got to last week. And we have God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. The temple has been established uh, under Solomon. So really, the first thing I want us to look to today is a prophetic message of judgment. Okay, turn back to Isaiah 11, or if you've got it open, have a look at it. So Isaiah is, you know, the prophet um, who is speaking to God's people. At this time, the kingdom has been split into two. You have Israel and the country known as Judah. But do you notice this stump, which will be the hope for all people, it's talking about a stump. And that a stump isn't promising. A stump means something has been cut down. There's a sense of desolation. Something reduced, even felled. And that's what's happened to God's people. Even though this message, prophetic message of judgment, there's hope which comes from the stump of Jesse, this twig or branch which will emerge from it. It's saying something about the people of God, and that is they have been cut down, they've been reduced, they've been diminished. And that describes God's people at this time, both literally and figuratively. As I say, last week we saw in the partial kingdom how... Um, God's people were in God's place under God's rule and blessing. People, Israel, in Canaan, we had the law and the temple. King David has been their king. As the Bible tells us, he was a man after God's own heart. His reign was followed by Solomon, who began well, as you may recall, the request he had when God offered him whatever he wanted. It was the gift of wisdom. And it was under Solomon that the nation of Israel reached that zenith of power and wealth. So the question is, is this or was this the perfect kingdom, that promise that God had made to Abraham? And in a word, no. And again, the problem is sin. Sin against God, which is sin. All sin is against God. And it's the same problem which traced back to the first human beings, back in the beginning, Adam and Eve, back in the garden. Both David, in many ways a good king, Solomon, who started out well, they both did not obey God. They failed to obey, to, to obey him and depend on him fully. Solomon's great power and wealth, you know, he had numerous wives, many of them foreign, who worshipped other gods. And as Solomon grew older, he was not fully devoted to the one true God, Yahweh, but worshipped other gods, who are no gods at all. 
Already those fault lines are in place in the partial kingdom, which meant it would never be God's perfect kingdom. When Solomon died, Israel was plunged into a civil war and split into two nations, Judah in the south, and rather confusingly, the northern kingdom was known as Israel. That's the ten tribes, and the capital is Samaria. Again, cast your mind back to the partial kingdom. We've got it there. We thought about last week. The partial kingdom's now divided, and its people are also. The temple remains in Jerusalem, in the nation known as Judah. But Jeroboam, who's a king of the northern uh, country, known as Israel, sets up a rival place of worship to Jerusalem, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And each place, and he didn't want people going to Jerusalem to come to worship God. So he set up these places of alternative worship. And at each place, he set up a golden calf. And that should set alarm bells ringing, shouldn't it? Just remember what happened when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. So this history of the divided kingdom, which we're really looking at now, is about approximately 500 years, and we're trying to compress this into a pretty short time, so you have to bear with me. We can't go into great detail. But the theme and the constant between both kingdoms, be it Judah or Israel, is they forsake that covenant, that covenant they made with the one true God, and they worship false gods, idols, and they don't love and honor and worship God as the covenant had installed and directed them to. And so it's into this period of the divided kingdom that the prophets are now active, warning the people of God's coming judgment, and they say, return back to the one true God. Spoke, God spoke through the prophets God's spirit was upon them, and as they spoke, it was as if they were God's mouthpiece to the people. They were proclaiming God's word to the people. It was his warning to return to him, live and observe the covenant as they had been instructed to do so. But instructed, in a sense, that was how they would flourish, that would be how God's people would live in God's place under his rule and blessing. The definitive prophet was Moses. Remember how he revealed God, God revealed his law to Moses on Mount Sinai? And the generations which followed were to remain true to that covenant that had been established between God and his people. It's vital to remember, though, that the people of Israel at the time were already God's people. They were his people before they received the law. Do you remember they were slaves in the land of Egypt and God heard their cry and and an act of pure grace, he came and rescued them out of Egypt? They were his treasured possession. But if they were to subsequently enjoy and experience his blessing... The people were called to obey him and worship him. They were to have no other gods because they are no gods at all. Just, you might recall, I mean, it's um, one of those verses many of us 
um, whose memories are pretty poor, can actually remember. Back in Exodus 34, verse 6, this is how God describes himself, his nature and character to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So it's the role of the prophets that followed Moses to be, as Vaughan Roberts um, uses a phrase in his book, covenant enforcers. God's people of a covenant were to come back. They were to keep it. They weren't to wander away from it. If they did, God would judge them for their unfaithfulness and disobedience. So whether in the northern kingdom, that's Israel, or the people of Judah in the south, the message was the same. Remain true to the covenant which your ancestors received from the Lord on Mount Sinai. Do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. That is what they were to do. Obey the Lord, remain faithful. But this, this is from the prophet Elijah. He spoke to the people in the northern kingdom and just gives you an indication. This was in the reign of King Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was probably as bad as you can get in terms of a king. But nonetheless, greater or lesser degrees, this was the problem of God's people, be it in the southern kingdom or be it in the northern kingdom, Israel. So this is from 1 Kings 19, verse 10. No need to turn to it. So this is what Elijah says to God. The Israelites rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. In one form or another, king after king, in both Israel and Judah, allowed such things to occur. Despite the prophets, the covenant enforcers, called to remain faithful, indeed to return to a gracious and compassionate God, despite their sin, the warnings largely fell on deaf ears. Idolatry separates people from the God who alone can enable them to live in harmony, to joy his blessings and his peace. The relationship between his people and God is fractured and judgment follows. And that's exactly what will take place. God's people, both Israel and Judah, will and they do face his judgment. It's a long, slow, steady decline. Almost judgment in slow motion. But it happens. As God has warned, it will happen through his prophets. So the northern kingdom, Israel, forced the Assyrians in 722 BC. Assyria was the military superpower at the time. Um, the southern kingdom, they hung on for a bit longer, approximately 130 years. And this time it wasn't the Assyrians, but it was the Babylonian Empire. The Assyrians had been conquered by the Babylonians. So in 586, Babylonians besiege and take Jerusalem. The temple's destroyed and the people are scattered or taken into exile. Do you see how God uses those foreign nations, those powers, Assyria, Babylon, 
He'll use Persia later on and the Greeks to execute his judgment upon his people. You know, these aren't just historical events. Behind these events is the one true God, the God of the universe, the sovereign God who controls all things. So remember how we were thinking of God's kingdom, um, we of God's people under God's place, under his rule and blessing. Now, God's people are shattered or scattered even. In exile, God's land is now part of a foreign empire. And the temple of Jerusalem has been sacked and left in ruins. So just think of that, you know, God's kingdom in terms of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. We can see where it lies at the moment, can't we? And that problem remains the human heart. Sin, nothing has changed since the first humans. Adam and, when Adam and Eve declared that UDI, that unilateral declaration of independence, the problem of the human heart remains. So next thing and final thing we're going to look at is a prophetic message of hope. So here we have the decline of Israel, or that's the decline of the Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom. Yet, as we see in that dotted line up there, there is that hope, that prophetic hope that will come in the future. So as I say, so far, so bad. Remember that promise that God had made to um, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. We looked at it a few weeks ago in these main sessions. And do you remember that promise? I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God will be, and God always is, faithful to his promises. But how, as we've just seen, God's people have been scattered and dispersed, The land is now occupied by foreign empires. The temple has been destroyed. So the rule and blessing has been shattered. So how will God bring about the perfect kingdom? That promise to Abraham. God's people in God's place. Under God's rule and blessing. And it's true. 538 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia. Now the Babylonians have been defeated by the Persians. Persian Empire is in place. He allows he allowed people from across the empire to go back to wherever they had come from, including the Jews who are allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. A, only a small number of people attend. Still, many of God's people are scattered throughout uh, the lands. The temple is rebuilt. It's a shadow of its former self, that temple under Solomon. And when it's constructed and finished, some of the older people have returned from exile in Persia or Babylon. Um, They weep because they can see how it's nothing like the temple was under Solomon. And the promised land is now part of the Persian Empire. It will soon be part of the Greek Empire. 
Last week, we talked about Alexander the Great, and that, you know, went all the way to India and set up a Greek Hellenistic empire. After his death, it was um, split into the successors, his generals. And this part, Judah, or the Promised Land, would form part of that empire. And again, how is this promise going to be fulfilled? How is that prophetic hope going to be realized? Take a look back at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. That's page 697. As I say, a stump appears less than promising. But the stump and the root or the twigs which will grow from it, they are of great promise. A promise for all of humanity. A root or a twig twig will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. So from this stump will come one from the line of King David. That Davidic line is the true Adam. This is none other than Jesus, the anointed one, God's perfect king. And you see there in verse 2, just take a look, the Spirit of God will rest on him. This king will be anointed, not with oil, which is what happened to the kings of Israel. This king will be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. This is God's true king. And because he's anointed with God's Spirit, he's able to rescue his people and rule and reign perfectly. See how different. God's true king, Jesus, is to the previous kings of Israel. He will reign with perfect wisdom and justice. Flick back a couple of pages to chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah. So that's page 694, if you've got the church Bibles. Not far to flick back. And many of us will be familiar with this passage. It's one we hear at Christmas in the services very, very often. It says this. For us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, fully God and fully man. We've been thinking of the kingdom of God in terms of God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Under the partial kingdom, God's people were already divided. As we saw, the kingdom had split into two, and that shouldn't have happened had they obeyed and kept the covenant with the one true God. With the full first of Israel, then Judah, God's people are scattered yet even further. Yet, as we see, there is this prophetic hope for God's people to be reassembled as one people. And again, the prophets speak of this event in the future when God's king returns to judge the living and the dead and to bring about the perfect kingdom, that new heaven and new earth, the new creation. This is from the prophet Jeremiah, who was a century later than the prophet Isaiah. Um, In chapter 16, verse 15 of Jeremiah, again, no need to look at it. This is what Jeremiah has to prophesy to the people. For I will restore them, that's God, to the land I gave to their ancestors. 
Look across the page to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. A remnant will return. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Have a read of that. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner to the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Once again, God's people will be brought back as one from every corner of the world. And we're reminded, aren't we, of Revelations chapter 7, verse 9. After that, this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and language. Just as God's people will be reassembled on Christ's return, so too will creation itself. Back to Isaiah chapter 11. And we'll focus on verse 6. Again, Verses which perhaps are very familiar to many of us. The wolf will lie. Will, <clears throat> the, roof, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little, and a little child will lead them. It's not clear whether this is to be taken literally or symbolically. Scholars much wiser and clever than myself have argued the point. Either way, we're looking back to Eden, to creation as it was, how before sin not only separated humanity from God, but creation itself was frustrated, was out of sync, if you like, and has been ever since. When Jesus returns, creation will be restored, recreated, God's king will rule and reign and it will be a kingdom of peace and perfection. Indeed, as we saw back in chapter 9 of Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. The new creation, new heaven and new earth that Isaiah speaks of in chapter 65, that's what we're, will be realized. So we look back to Eden at the beginning and we look forward um, in Isaiah chapter 65, again, which you don't need to look at, where he Isaiah, again, sees that picture of a new heaven and a new earth. And also the new heaven and the new earth, the Apostle John spoke of in Revelation chapter 1, where the dwelling place of God will be with his people. Now, heaven will not be some fluffified, floaty, cloud-like, ethereal existence. It's earthy, physical Somewhere for God's resurrected, physically resurrected people will delight in the new creation and bring praise and worship to God. It's the new Jerusalem. It's as God's place was meant to be back at the beginning with no sin or death, pain or suffering, with God's glory filling the new creation. Paradise regained, if you like. Justice, it's something almost everyone longs for, I guess, isn't it? And when we look around the world and we, we see the cruelty, violence, man's inhumanity to man, we all want justice. But the problem is, we are all guilty. We are all sinners. Just as our ancestors 
the first humans, Adam and Eve. It was humanity's sin, our sin and rebellion against God's rightful rule and reign, which led to dislocation between heaven and earth. So how will the problem of sin be dealt with? Take a look at verse 4 of chapter 11, if you've still got that page open. Isaiah in this chapter has been speaking of God's king, the anointed one, the Christ. Do you see there in verse 4? He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. When did Jesus slay the wicked? When did God's judgment fall? It was at the cross. The punishment of God on God was laid in the person of Jesus. This is from Isaiah 53, verse 5. Again, a read, um, verse which will be very familiar, and we hear it at Easter. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's the inauguration of that new covenant through Jesus' death. It's how God will deal with the problem of sin. His people will find full forgiveness through the cross and be changed within through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the new covenant which the prophets, that prophetic hope they were pointing to. This, again, Jeremiah speaking to the people of Judah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this is the kingdom of God, the prophesied kingdom. And you know, don't you, God's people will be the new Israel, including the nations. God's place, the new temple, is the new creation. And God's rule and blessing will be the new covenant and that new perfect king. The prophesied kingdom, that great hope for the future made true in Christ, shows us how the kingdom of God will be realized and finally fulfilled, brought finally into being. God's people will be the remnant who belong to him from every corner of the globe, no longer just ethnic Jews, but from every tribe and every tongue. God's place for a new physical heaven and new earth will be populated by his people, his redeemed people. The dwelling place of God will be with man, with God's perfect king and rule established. And as we wait... We look ahead to that prophetic hope. We trust, we know that will come true because God is faithful. He keeps his promises. We trust in what Christ has done on the cross. So his sin-bearing death counts for us. His perfect life counts for us. When God looks at us, our sins be cast upon him. So all who put their trust in Christ know that that coming day when, that, when Christ returns, when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that, Lord, um, that Christ is Lord, will, day, will be a day when we have confidence and assurance, not in ourselves, but in what Christ has done on the cross and his coming out the other side of death, rising again from death, means that we have that hope, that hope of the new heaven and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come.